and then giving you a dirty look when you know when you're just trying to figure them out. It's like geez, oh, paid people. Oh man, it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting. I I, I don't have much optimism for the the, the future of humanity. Mankind. Exactly. I was just gonna say humanity, let alone everything else. Goodness gracious. Oh, but anyway. Well, do you want to have a conversation about uh, game cameras, my friend? Yeah. All right. Well, let me kick off the little intro, and I and I'm I've got my notes, and the notes are pathetic. So we're just gonna spitball this baby because my brain is, and we'll talk about it. My brain is about eight ways, eight, eight different directions. So all right. Okay. Three, two, one. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Row Hunting Resources Podcast. Well, today I have another guest, and this person is gonna be. Uh, I think most of you are going to be familiar with, but we're going to talk about a topic that seems to always circle back to me this time of year, each year, and that is the topic of running game cameras for scouting elk. And there's a lot of people that end up getting a little shocked to find out that not only do I not run game cameras most of the time for myself scouting elk, I actually don't recommend other people running game cameras to scout for elk in the summer, especially if you're talking about high country areas and or you're hunting on public ground over-the-counter units, all right? But I always give the qualification that not all areas are created equal. So why don't we talk to someone who is, he's a, currently a subject matter expert in it, and every year becomes even you know increasingly so because they are managing a 50,000 acre private ranch in Colorado and they run a very sizable game camera survey effort 365 days a year on that property. What can we learn from that type of scenario? And by the way, we're going to get into the the nature of the ranch, but they have a diverse habitat profile on that ranch. So the reason why I wanted to have this discussion first about this topic was because we have a good real world example what a lot of people might be dealing with in especially Colorado, but whether we're Oregon, Idaho, uh, New Mexico, whether it's Colorado, it doesn't matter. What does elk behavior their movement patterns, what does that look like from summer into fall, fall into winter, and can we really learn anything from running game cameras in the summer to help us with our scouting efforts and our fall hunting efforts? Well, let's dive in. Hey everybody, I've got a, I've got a couple topics that I want to discuss uh, that are elk related. And if I'm going to talk elk with somebody, I'm just gonna have to go with the first person that ever invited me on a podcast to talk to uh, talk about elk, and that is the OG of hunting podcasts, Mr. Jay Scott, Mr. Senior. Nice intro there. <laughs> I'm, doing, I'm doing great, buddy. It's uh, great. On and I'm pumped that you now have a podcast rolling. And so I think you've got nine or so episodes and, uh, on iTunes. So yeah, welcome. 
Thanks, man. I know it just, you know, you know my operation. I'm a, I'm essentially a one-man band out here just flailing around. I've, I've got one arm tied behind my back, and I'm, I'm just trying to play all the instruments. So um, I've got a bunch. I just got done doing a bunch of videos or a couple videos for the Elk module. I just did a six, six videos for the Elk Collective, and I've got a bunch of other videos that are – I've got stacks of notes and videos queued up to where I'm going to – dive in on a lot more deep kind of topics on the elk module elk hunting Hunting institute but the podcast is something that i do that people do enjoy and i know they do and and i just need to do more of them because it's you know i don't know i i end up i tend to overthink things and i know that it doesn't take much to just hit record and jibber jabber with somebody and then post it so but no, that that intro, man, is is absolutely the truth. I'm not going to lie to you. That's the truth. I mean, you were the first one when when you started. I mean, when did you start your podcast? Honestly, how many years ago? Well, I started in February of 2015, and I'm over 700 episodes in now, and close to 40 million downloads. And um, I remember probably within the first year of doing the podcast. Most people that I called to do a podcast, requesting to do a podcast interview with them, had to even explain to them what a podcast was. Yeah. And now, you know, it seems like it's very, very common that uh, most everyone that's heard and knows what a podcast is. So it's amazing to see how far the space has come, and I, I don't even honestly think we've scratched the surface or even the tip of the ice. I think we're you know just at the tip of the iceberg here of, of podcasts. So it's exciting to see a lot of the new podcasts that have come uh, online uh, in every genre, every topic, every space. Um, and I think it's a great place for people to communicate and learn. And um, yeah, so I started in February of 2015, and you know I try and do eight or ten. Uh, episodes a month. You know, there's been times where I've done, you know, 14, 15, 16 in a month. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's been going great. It's uh, still overwhelming to, um, you know, get messages from people every day that, you know, found value in the podcast. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about it is I'm learning uh, as I go, as I interview people. And, um, you know, so it's it, Well, that's one thing. I mean, so back when you started, I mean, really, how many other hunting-related podcasts? I mean, we can even just talk about how many podcasts there were back then. Like you just said, I mean, you had to explain what a podcast was. But, I mean, really, how many other hunting podcasts were out there at the time? Yeah, I mean, I got a call. I got back to my coos bear hunts January of 2015, and Yana uh, Patelis over at the Meat Eater uh, had just started over there, and uh, he said, Jay, I uh, started a podcast. He, Ronella, started a podcast, and we want you to listen to the pilot episode. Tell us what you think. And I had a year prior, or maybe six months prior, been asked to you know, be on a podcast. Um, a guy from Texas, uh, Corby Taylor, and I didn't even know at the time what it was. He said, it's basically like a radio show, I'll just interview you. So I said, okay, and then Yana sent me this pilot episode 
first episode of the Meat Eater podcast, and, and in that, um, he said, I want your feedback, and then I was talking to him, and he's like, hey, you ought to start a Western hunting and fishing podcast, it'd go great with your outfitting business, and, you know, all the adventures and stuff that you do, and so he actually sent me a bunch of the equipment to use, and two weeks later, I was up and running, uh, ironically, I had a bad case of strep throat, believe it or not, um, and I was uh, I had gone to the doctor and the whole thing, and actually launched my first episode. Just being able, just getting over strep throat and being able to talk, that I was anxious to get started. So, yeah, over seven hundred episodes later, here we are. That's awesome. Well, I will tell you that you know, and I've heard the same thing, and and I, my my brain struggles with what I know and what I feel and what I know is that there is a gargantuan open market and I don't mean not necessarily even just commercialization but I'm just saying the the interest that people have in consuming information or just even entertainment is huge and so I understand. I know that there is a place for everybody out there, and we, you know, you and I both kind of share same political views. And so, it's uh, you know, we we always talk about there's not just one big pie that everybody has to split up. I mean, there's all sorts of pies, and there's all sorts of pieces of pie, and everybody can share different pieces of pie. And it just the more the more people are out there engaging, the more pies they're making, and the more the everybody can split up and and enjoy. That's that's the one side of me. And so that's been the argument that I think you and other people have told me in the past. You're like, why the hell don't you have a pod? You just get out there and yeah. do it. But the yeah. the other the other flip side though, the other the other side of me though that absolutely just goes batshit crazy is the fact that I'm like, oh my gosh, there is a there are there's everybody and their brother's uncle now has a podcast. And it I mean it just seems overwhelming these days to try to weed through and just try to figure out how, goodness gracious. I mean. Well, you know, my thoughts on that are, are this. I, I think the, the better quality podcasts that are out there, the better for all of us as podcasters because it just creates more value for people and it gives podcasting, which I think it already has, you know, not a stigma of, something that's not of value, it actually gives us a stigma that creates a lot of value. I think one of the things that you have to understand and, and know is that there'll be things that start and, and, you know, do 10 episodes and then they never move forward. I don't try and dwell on all the different hunting podcasts that come on or fishing podcasts that come on because the reality is I just need to do what I'm doing and yeah. I think one of my biggest things that I hate about podcasting, and it, it just kind of goes with my personality, is I hate anything that's trendy. I always have ever since yes. I was a little kid. I hate. Yes. I hate the, the, the popular, the trendy, the you know trying. I just I'm I, I'm actually the exact opposite of that. Um, and the one thing you know, it does seem that pod, podcasting is popular. So there's part of me that says, you know, it's great, create as much value for people as you can. There's part of me that says, man, I hate, I hate this in a way because everyone does have a podcast and it just seems so trendy. And I think I've always hated being doing trendy stuff. But then I get the messages every day from people, you know, talking about the value and 
that they got from the episode, from the guests that I had on, and it reminds me that I just need to stay in my lane and do what I do, and, you know, there's a lot more podcasts than mine that are a lot more entertaining and, and you know, a lot funnier and, you know, have a comedic value, and then there's my podcast is pretty much just wham, bam, straight information, no music, no fancy intros, just, you know, just straight info and education, and that's kind of my personality, and that's, you know, what I just try and focus on. So, again, I think it's easy to focus on all the new stuff coming online, and any time that that ever hits me, I just basically stop looking at it and just keep doing what I'm doing, and, um, you know, that's all we can do. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you. I'm the same way, and, and quite honestly, that anti-trendy personality ends up leaving me oftentimes a day late and a dollar short on, you know, whether it's cool new products or whether it's new techniques on something or what, you know, I, I, I'm the one that's going to sit back and go, you know what, let's just see if this thing's got legs and I'll let it have a season or two under its belt and let everybody else work out all the kinks and work out all the, the bugs and crap. And, and if it actually is something legit and they perfect it, well, then I'll get on then then I'll get on the bandwagon. But that usually puts yeah. me about a year behind everybody else. <laughs> well, I think too. I mean, I think you know Joe Rogan signing the big thing with Spotify over a hundred million dollars. And I mean, I I've gotten the whole time that I've had my podcast running. You know, now uh, it'll be six years in, in February. Uh, they, they can't, they say, you know, what are you doing? Well, I'm in real estate and I'm an outfitter and a podcaster. And I'm like, well, so you make your money with real estate, huh? Well, yeah, I actually make a really good living podcasting. And, you know, a lot of people, they just can't believe that there's, that there's money in podcasting. They just look at you and go, well, I mean, how do you make money? But on the flip side of that, too, I think a lot of the podcasts that have come online, immediately there's people that are trying to commercialize and monetize there you that, go. and it's just a complete backfire. Um, there you, you go. Know, I, again, I think the more commercialized and the more you're trying to make money, the worse your podcast is going to be. Um, you know, there'll, there'll be a bunch of episodes where I won't even mention a, a, a sponsor or anything just because I want to keep, I want to keep the content real. You know, I don't want, I never want my listeners thinking that it's about money. Yeah, well, and and the thing that you said there too is, well, you left out one word in that sentence or in what you were saying. The good podcasts have the potential to make money. And that's the yeah. thing is you, you've got to have, and this is one of those things where it's just whether, you know, people are like, oh, I want to be a Facebook content creator. Okay. There, there are some folks on Facebook that are making millions. Yeah, absolutely there are. And they are less than one percent of the people that are putting content on the there's people that make money off of YouTube. Yes, there are. But I know as a, as somebody who has a YouTube channel that I've I know the the popular videos that I have that are monetized, the pittance of money that you're actually getting. In order to make money off of social media. You have to have serious. You ha- people just need to crave you twenty four seven, and you need to be able to feed it. And so, with a podcast, I I'm I am I see the same thing you do, man. the 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 money off of a podcast 
comes after you've already built a following and people just want more and more and more and more and more and more. Where advertisers show up and ask you if they can, you know, advertise. Right. If if you're just start like me, I, they, people are like, oh no, hell no. I've got six subscribers, <laughs> six listeners. I think I jumped up to six this week. You know, it's it, just freaking put, just put your put your content out there, and and. If it's good, the cream will rise to the top and people will yeah, notice. Exactly. And I think, you know, when I started my podcast, I never even started it thinking that I would be doing it and it would actually be something that I would monetize and, and make money off of. I was fortunate after five episodes to get approached by GoHunt.com. They've you know, been with me ever since because they saw the value. But I also think because there was not many podcasts and they liked what I was doing and we're like wow what is this yeah seems like a great thing i think a lot of the new people that are starting need to understand that you know you have to provide value before you can expect to have any sort of monetization yeah and understand that monetization actually kills credibility and kills your podcast so Oh, that there's there's you have to have a fine balanced line of making sure you're not chilling because the second that a listener thinks that you know you're just doing any and Chris, you know, you've seen whether it be TV commercials or you know radio shows or TV shows or podcasts, when someone is trying to sell and some you can just tell someone is being cheesy and not genuine. Yeah, it just doesn't pay off at all. No, and, and I can tell you right now, there are several podcasts that I no longer listen to because they have turned commercial. And and I'm not going to name names on this one, but there is another wildlife professional that I have um, been following for a while that I had, a, I, that I, I still do. I've got a lot of respect for the guy. The guy is good, uh, but he's been given an opportunity to branch in a different direction and really commercialize some more of what he's doing. And already, I'm watching him and I'm going, man, you are heading off the, you are heading off into the weeds into territory that is not your wheelhouse. That's not your lane. That is, that's not who you are. And you're doing that because you think it's trendy. You, you're, you're doing it because you want to play along with the sponsors and you want to be, and it's, I look at it and I'm like, man, it's just, it just sours the, it just sour for me. And I'm, you know what? And I know it's just me. It's my own value set. But as a consumer of information and I can choose who I spend time with as far as intellectually engaging with and following, it just, for me, it just sours the experience. I'm like, man, it's not the same now. You know, before when 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 they were talking about their passion and what they did and how they did stuff on the landscape, there was some there was that I don't know it was it was just more genuine and you could you right. could tell that there was truth behind it. And now I'm watching Instagram posts and I'm seeing Facebook posts and I'm seeing YouTube videos and I'm like, golly, here we go. You know, another another good one is gonna get lost to this, you know, I don't know, 
tribe mentality, this we marketing type deal, or just I want to be everybody to everybody, and I'm going to be, you know, I'm I'm 55 years old, but now I'm going to be trendy. It's like, okay, hold on. Just stay in your lane, man. You know, if you want to expand your brand, if you want to expand in, in, and bring other people in, go go for it. But don't sell your soul down the river just because there might be a little bit more stable money. And that's the thing, you know, the, the old adage of, you know, if you're going to give up your liberty for a little safety, then you end up getting neither. And, and I, I see that from the standpoint of these guys. It, there's this, this idea that, oh, this new advertising money is a quote-unquote better, uh, more quote-unquote consistent income stream than maybe consulting is. Well, maybe while the penny is still shiny, but you, I mean, you and I've talked about the, the spot, you know, the, the advertiser route and the sponsor route. I mean, that's the, that's the entire reason why when I started Row Hunting Resources, we went the subscription model. And I remember talking to you going, what are you doing, Chris? I mean, you should be, you know, every, you know, you're making, going to make more money off of the advertising. Well, maybe, you know, if, if, if I had the personality that was out there just outgoing, charismatic, always in front of people, always just push, push, drive, 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 and, and always, you know, gathering attention, maybe advertising would be the way to go. But like, you know, like you, I do have an outgoing personality, but my wheelhouse is more education. You know, I have fun with things, but it's more education. Well, education, quite honestly, isn't flashy. And... So you might have somebody that's like, oh yeah, yeah, I want to, I want to advertise with you. Well, they advertise you with you for a couple months, and then they're like, well, yeah, it's not working out, and so we're not going to do that anymore. Well, guess what? Now you've gone down a, a, a side rabbit hole where you thought the, the advertising revenue was going to save your bacon, and quite honestly, it becomes more fickle than what your original consulting and everything else was. So I don't know. I I like yeah, you. It's, it's important to stay true to yourself and. You know, stick, stick in your lane and stay in your wheelhouse. And you know, I think when people venture out of their wheelhouse, that's where they can get slapped on the wrist a little bit. And you know, I think the the, the consumer can spot right away what's fake and what's real. And um, so, yeah, you know, if I give any advice to anyone out there starting a podcast, it's just do you, be you, and uh, things will things will be great. It's when you get outside your lane is when things can get sideways and go crazy. Yeah, and and we're not talking about not trying new things and and try you know sure. pushing the envelope. It just it's when you when you step outside of the envelope uh, of your envelope because you think I don't know. I here we are. We're trying to get awful lot philosophical. Anyway, you, I think people get the get the point. But I to be true to our nature. Um, I wanted to have you on for a very specific, A, it's fun to talk with you, but B, from a very um, specific purpose, and that purpose is this. I wanted to chat with you about game cameras and elk, okay? So now I sent you, a couple weeks ago, I sent you just a little, you know, list of, top, you know, little ideas, but... So the listener knows what's going on. Here's why I want to talk about this. All right. Over the years, it has, in my opinion, at least the traffic that I have been getting 
from emails, private messages, um, whether it's on Facebook, whether it's on Instagram, doesn't matter. More and more people seem to be interested in running game cameras for elk. And from Jay, you and and you, I think have a little bit more. You, well, no, you don't have a little. You 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 have more direct experience with this than I do. But there there are some places where people are running game cameras, and let's let's just say Arizona. Okay, you got a lot of outfitters that want to run game cameras. And part, and they're getting a ton of summer pictures of gargantuan bulls. And you and I both know that a lot of these outfitters are using those pictures as marketing tools to get clients. They're like, look at this picture, look at this picture, look at that picture, look at this picture. Likewise, you are in a situation now with your personal uh, work with the Ot6 Ranch, where I know you are using game cameras. And from a management standpoint, I think there can be a benefit to that and maybe even a different, possibly a different um, use of game cameras than maybe what just some of the outfitters are doing down in Arizona. But then there is a whole other subset, and these are the people that are getting a hold of me. They're They're the folks that are hunting on public ground. A lot of them are over the counter units, whether we're talking anything from Oregon and Idaho, all the way down to New Mexico, and there's a ton of people that have contacted me over the years, and increasingly so, from Colorado, that are, again, hunting public ground in over-the-counter units that want to run game cameras, because what they think they are doing is scouting, and when they get a hold of me, the question ends up being one of a couple different. Some of them ask, you know, Chris, do you run game cameras for elk? Answers no. And then, then though, then here, oh, here we go. Here's the conversation. People are like, what? You don't? Why not? And, and here we go down the rabbit hole of why I don't personally run game cameras in the mountains. But then the other question is, is how? Okay, how should I run game cameras in the mountains? for elk. What would I do? What camera do I recommend? Where would I put the game cameras? How would I set up a game camera? There's a pile of different people that are interested in running game cameras on, doesn't matter, running game cameras for elk. My premise, number one, is this. Not all areas are created equal as far as elk activity on the landscape and my premise has always been in some of these areas that people want to run game cameras in the mountains on public ground during the summer the reason and I'll just I'll just blurt it out right now the reason I do not in many cases up in the mountains is because where the bulls spend their summer in the mountains is not necessarily where they're going to spend the rut. And they're going to make that pre-rut move and they're going to walk away from wherever they, you know, somebody goes up and scouts and finds a bachelor group of bulls on a couple of wallows and they put a bunch of game cameras on it. And then all of a sudden, lo and behold, the last picture they get of an elk on there is August 15th. And then they got nothing. 
because those bulls made that pre-rut move and they moved away from their summer area and went to their where those cow-calf groups are and then they scattered across the mountain you know, for the rest of the rut. So I've always argued that some people using game cameras in the mountains might actually be hurting themselves insofar as, A, you're not getting the information that you think you're getting, number one. Number two, the more times you go up and check your cameras and you go farting around up in and around where you want to hunt, the more human scent that you put on the landscape and the more disturbance you give, the more education you're giving these animals and the less likely you're going to have success later on. Now, that's my opinion. But I thought maybe, okay, that's my that's my professional opinion of what I've seen. But there are a bunch of different people that are running game cameras and I'd like to have a conversation with them. You are in a very interesting, for me, intellectually interesting scenario, given the fact that as the hunt programs and elk manager of the Ot 6 Ranch, from what I've seen on the Ot 6 pages, and I've, you know, you and I've talked before, you are running pretty extensive game camera surveys, are you not? Yeah, all year round. Okay, you're doing 365. All right, excellent. Now, let's take it. Let and again, I, I understand the the some of the limit, some of the the sensitive issues you've got with the with the OT six. So we'll we'll tiptoe into some of these. How many? Okay, so let's just start with. Let's give people an idea of what we're talking about when when we're talking about Jay and the OT six ranch. Okay, how many acres is that ranch? The ranch is roughly fifty thousand deeded private acres. And we run approximately 150 trail cameras, of which probably 50 of those are video cameras, 4K, stealth cam 4K video cameras, and the other 100 are um, the regular uh, G34 Pros stealth cam that just take photos. Uh, they also take video, but the quality's not very good. Yeah. Um, and, and before we get into that, I just want to say one thing. I started in 2017 at the Ox 6. A friend of mine bought the ranch and asked me to come and kind of take inventory of, of things and see what they've got as far as elk and deer and bear and turkey and lion and everything else. But uh, prior to that, I guided in Arizona for 20 years uh, on state land, uh, national forest land primarily in Arizona. And that last year of 2016, uh, you know, trail cameras in, say, Unit 9 and some of the different units became more and more prevalent where you'd come up to a trick tank and there'd be, you know, 8, 10, 12, 15 cameras, fisheries being it. And to be honest with you, it kind of soured me on the whole thing. I never ran cameras uh, while I guided. I shouldn't say never. Maybe one camera and maybe, you know, sporadically. But camera wasn't my focus. And when I got the opportunity to go over the op six, I thought it was a perfect opportunity to kind of transition a little bit out of that craziness because Arizona is so arid and so dry, you know, coming up to a, a water hole and literally having 15 different trail cameras is a little, it just, for me, it took away from the experience. And so this opportunity to go over to the op six, September and October and just, you know, video and monitor and, and you know, watch elk. Uh, was a perfect no-brainer for me. So yeah, yeah. So uh, fifty thousand acres. We run about one hundred and fifty trail cameras and uh, one hundred and 
company works with me. Uh, we basically, we call ourselves chief uh, trail camera technicians because all we do every day is change batteries, check cards, reposition cameras, you know, and constantly trying to get different angles and, and um, you know, capture the elk in their natural environment doing their thing. And um, that, that's what I've been doing 17, 18, 19, and that now the 2020 year. All right. What? All right, so I'm going to take this stepwise because, and we let's and we can kind of put a pin in the, the Arizona one because I'll, I'll I'll round back to that. Even though that I know that you did not run a lot in Arizona, I do want to get your take on a couple things on there. But let's let's take it step by step. So you got fifty thousand acres of private property. Now you guys are located in what I would what generally class, classify as that South Central Colorado. Is that fair enough? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What are your elevations? What's the top and what's the bottom? What's the average, do you think? So we're at about 7,500 at the bottom and we're about 10,000, a hair over 10,000 at the highest. Okay. And from what I remember being out there, it seems as though, and you feel free to correct me, it seems as though you could almost classify a third of that ranch as... It, it almost looks like that ranch lays on a fairly even slope to where, I mean, yes, there's there's ridges, but what I'm getting at is it just transitions from 7,500 to 10,000 fairly uniformly, doesn't it? Does it not? Or, or do you have yeah, more? Yeah, I mean, from a north to south perspective, it, it basically slopes from okay. uh, the highway going west to basically kind of slope up and the highest elevations would be the furthest yeah. So you've got a good mix of habitats, and and that's what I wanted to get to next. Is is for those people listening? I've been out there. I've I've kind of gone through it with you. You have a mix of habitats that you know down low. You've got your you know your grasslands. You've got your. Uh, do you have pinions out there? Or is it mostly just juniper? No, we have pinions. We have pinion. We have you know what I call cedars or junipers. Okay. Uh, but we definitely have pinion pine as well. Oak brush? We do not have... Very, okay. okay. We have very, very, very little oak brush. There's actually none at all. I mean, hardly any oak brush at all. Ponderosa pine? We have ponderosa pine, yes. Aspens? Yeah, aspens. Okay. So Blue, you're... Blue spruce. There you go. So for people listening, as you go in their lower elevations, you get that more arid... Pinion juniper country that many people are familiar with, and then you start going up in elevation. You start rolling into that ponderosa pine community, and then as you keep on going up, you start rolling into some of your spruce fir aspen community. Is that fair assessment? Yep. Excellent. Okay. Where are you primarily? Because so fifty thousand acres and one hundred and fifty cameras—that's not a lot of cameras. So where do you? No, let me rephrase that. As somebody who runs a bunch of cameras, 150 cameras is a nightmare of a chore to take care of. 150 cameras is a lot of cameras. But when you're talking about a 50,000-acre ranch, you've got them spread out a little bit. So where do you, what, over these past years, what, it, what have you found to be giving you the most consistent activity in front of a camera? Is it water primarily? Or are you talking mineral sites? Where are you generally focusing? I mean, it totally depends on the time of year, to be honest with you. Okay, perfect. Um, you know, what we 
try and do as the rut progresses is we try and be on the water holes, the water tanks, whether it be a metal water tank, uh, whether it be a spring, whether it be a wall, or whether it be a dirt tank. We try and really focus our video cameras there because of the elk need for, you know, water. And the ranch does have some creeks and some, you know, little perennial streams, if you will, but it's fairly arid. When people are thinking of Colorado, they think of, you know, super high country with, you know, just tons and tons of water. This ranch um, has a lot of water troughs, uh, has a, you know, pretty good extensive water system, you know, off of springs that they run pipes into water troughs um, and then dirt tanks. And so we try and focus on, you know, the water, especially around the rut and trying to get those, you know, videos and pictures of the elk usually basically focus on those congregation areas. Prior to this owner, it was a cattle ranch and there's a lot of old, um, salt mineral sites uh, where, you know, the, the ranchers have been for years putting out salt minerals. So we'll still uh, go and put some cameras in those places as well. But, you know, something that you had mentioned about those elk, you know, guys putting cameras in the summer and getting velvet pictures, uh, the elk on the optics as well as uh, in Arizona with my experience, those elk are usually nowhere near um, where they're getting their picture taken in the summer to where they are rutting. And then after the rut, where they winter, they're, they're all different areas. So they're, you know, they have areas they rut. We have bulls that come into the ranch, come from who knows where, show up and rut and do their whole thing and then they're gone and then they come back the following year and they're right back there rutting and then they're gone and then we have lots of elk that you know are resident elk and they basically stay on the ranch but in different parts of the ranch throughout the different you know different seasons that it okay perfect segue because that's literally what i wanted to, i wanted to know how much are you have you been okay because fifty thousand acres is a good chunk of ground. And and I mean that from a standpoint of most hunters, when they go up in the mountains, I know even some of the some of the areas that I have I have hunted, I might I literally might stay within two thousand acres. Literally the way the basin is or, or the ridges are or the valleys or whatever, you know, however the habitat is and, and the, the, the assemblage of, of drainages or ridges that I want to hunt, when I put a, a, a line around where I spend maybe a week-long hunt, that week-long hunt might only can be within a few thousand acres. Now that, that's what yeah, I'm. That, I would even I would even argue that you know like Colorado or Idaho or some of these high country hunts. I would even say that more more than likely a lot of hunters spend their time within three or four or five hundred acres. Correct. You know, figuring that a, a section is six hundred and forty acres and it's a mile by a mile. I mean, that's a pretty good chunk of land up up in quote unquote you know the Correct. country. Correct. Cover. At 100% correct, man. And that's exactly it. So when we're looking at, so, okay, 
this is again. I I apologize to I apologize to Jay and I apologize to everybody listening to this because my brain has been enraptured by about 13 different things regarding elk lately this past couple weeks. So my my brain is it's just it's just going right now because that's. That's it. So you're, we're sitting here looking. Okay, so for Unit 9, I, I think, I don't know if we can put a pin in it. I think we're going to have to just segue and just touch, you know, just, we're just going to have to pepper it in the conversation because it's relevant. Unit 9 Arizona is a freaking big unit. And there's water everywhere in there. And a lot of people still, you know, Arizona, that unit, there are a lot of roads and there's a lot of accessibility. And so people do from day to day, maybe one day that, you know, they, they get up in the morning and they leave camp and they go to the west side. And then the next day they're like, screw a bunch of this. We're going to go and we're going to go up in the pines. And then the next day they're going to say, oh, you know what? Screw that. We're going down to the dog knobs. We're going to go glass. So in, in Arizona, in some of those units, it's a vehicle hunt. I mean, you, you head out. You, you camp and then you get in your vehicle in the morning and you drive to a spot and then you go hunt that area. But so you can... Put it in perspective, Chris. I mean, talking Unit 9, I'm just guessing. I would say Unit 9 is probably like seven, six or 700,000 acres. Yes. Compared to 50,000. So it's a, a much bigger one, geographical land mass. So it's a much bigger area and there's roads accessible everywhere. So it's Every, yeah, everywhere. And that's kind of the point that I want to make is that, you know, you see these people that get enamored by uh, the game cameras, the footage that they're getting from, say, folks in Unit 9 or, or some of their places in Arizona. Understand, there are several hundred, maybe thousand. I don't know how many water tanks and in, in places down in, in Unit 9 you can put a camera on. But it's easy to cover country in that area a hell of a lot easier to cover country than even what you're dealing with on 50,000 acres, which is 10 times, 100 times bigger than what most average public land people end up engaging in their hunt areas. And so my, my number one criticism for those people that wanted to hunt public ground and run a game camera is, what is that camera actually giving you? Because let's, ta- let's just focus on the OT6. I, I, I'm glad that you were able to, to, to say that, and I'm glad you've seen that. Even on 50,000 acres, you're not watching... 100% of your bulls that come across that ranch in the fall. No, I mean, honestly, I need 500 cameras. I probably need four to 500 cameras to cover the ranch. Yeah, you what I would say totally, to be totally efficient, I'd probably need four or 500 cameras. Well, I mean, just in whitetails, I mean, I and, and this is the full qualification here. I understand whitetails are not elk and the habitats are different, so you can't generally say that there's a parallel here, but just even with whitetails, when you want to do a, a good game camera survey, you're looking at one camera per 100 to about 150 acres. So, I mean, yeah, you're talking about 
an elk, you know, a 50,000 acre ranch like yours, you're absolutely right. You need a few hundred cameras at minimum, and then you're going to need like two other employees just to help run all the, all the, 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 the logistics that go with running all of those cameras. But the thing is, is you're not, so even, even with what you're picked, I mean, you know what you're doing and you've spent some time on that ranch. So you have 150 cameras. My guess is you guys have figured out where the best spot as of now, the 150 top spots on that ranch to give you the best information. Cause let's just, you are, you, okay. So you are doing this activity primarily for the benefit of the family that owns the ranch. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay, so your job is to to know as much about that ranch and know as much about the elk movement and elk activity on that ranch and know as much information on individual animals, quality, pattern, movement, everything that you can know to optimize the likelihood of harvesting the best bull on that fit or two or three or four or five bulls, whatever you were going to take that year, your job is to go out there and find the top one, two, three, four, five bulls and know everything about them and their movement, where they are, why they're going there and how to capitalize them. Is that fair? Yeah, but even more than that, trying to establish the up and coming bulls and trying to follow them from Excellent. You know, the first time we see them and trying to then figure out year after year, okay, where is this bull and, you know, this bull should be good and he should be over here. And, you know, so not only the finding the best one that year, but trying to keep track of up and comers um, and more from an inventory standpoint and owners wanting to just know what's there and be, have, me and Hunter kind of in touch and in tune with what's happening and what's moving around uh, as much as the biggest ones there and the most mature ones there. Okay, perfect. You just accidentally segued into what I wanted to get into. So what you're saying is you're inventorying not only who's there now, and that may be a, a, a giant bull that comes and goes as he pleases, but what you're doing is you're also trying to inventory resident bulls. Who's who's an up and comer and who's sticking around? Is that is that fair? Yeah, and I mean who looks like an up and comer and let's follow him and see what he turns into and okay, three years in a row he's never materialized into anything. Or wow, this bull is, you know, we got pictures of in seventeen and we haven't paid much attention all of a sudden in the summer of 2020 he's blown up and really turned into something and that goes to a whole nother conversation of a lot of the bulls just like a lot of white bills even with age they're never going to be anything they're just going to be a five point or they're just going to be a small six with you know weak thirds or short fifths or just not you know short beams um and then you get the ones that are just genetically superior and all of a sudden you know they grow into the right age and they blow up a lot of people think that, you know, just elk, all they need is age, and they're all of a sudden going to be some giant bull. That's not always the case. We have lots of bulls that are, you know, we've seen have trail cameras in the last three and a half years, and they're basically the same. 
Fiend and, you know, stubby grunts, and they're just never going to be anything. Those are the ones we said, let's get those, let's shoot those first in a management situation. Just on a just on a curiosity, are you guys pulling teeth on them to, to on the incisors to get age on them? Yeah, so we're sending off um, all of our bulls that get killed. We're sending off, and I think it's Texas A and M. It might be Mississippi State. I'm not sure who it is, but uh, uh, the owner actually sends all of the teeth off and, and ages our bulls. On some of those management bulls, do you know what an age, have you gotten feedback on what age you're looking yeah, at? Yeah, so we've actually been anywhere from I believe six to ten years old. Oh, perfect. So you're talking, you're pulling them at their prime. You know, yeah, you, you can even you you could say yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can make an argument that a six-year-old bull hasn't quite you know maybe maybe he maybe he'd blow up if he was eight years old, but yeah. But if you're taking six to ten-year-old bulls, you're talking an average in their eight years old. They should be something by now. You know, you you. you yeah, I mean, if a bull by the time a bull is a four-year-old, if he's not a you know big fork. Yeah, and we can. That's and, my opinion. And, and and quite honestly, you might be right in that. And but that you're you're correct. And we can have a um, maybe we do put a pin in this one for a future conversation because it would be interesting to see what you're seeing. Because yeah, we can talk about genetics, but we could talk about epigenetics. We could talk about environmental factors, all sorts of things that you know. Same thing I'm seeing out here on my ground uh, with the whitetails that we're managing. I mean. All of a sudden now, this year, these past couple years, we have now finally gotten back to where, you know, whether it's the summer or whether it's early fall, all of a sudden a buck shows up on camera and it makes your eyes pop out because you're like, holy hell, where did he come from? Or it's a buck that we know that, like you said, is just exploding. Whereas for a number of years, we've had a pile of, well, heck, I mean, I killed a buck that was eight and a half or se- seven and a half or eight. So the one of the landowners I, I work with, he hunts as well. We've become pretty good friends. That year, we both killed a really nice mature buck, and I, I got the teeth mixed up. My bad. Um, so either I killed an eight-and-a-half-year-old deer or he killed an eight-and-a-half-year-old deer, and then the other one was seven-and-a-half years old. For a whitetail, that's an old buck. And you would think, you know, holy hell, there ought to be some potential there. Well... Both of our deer were in the 120s for any whitetail listeners. They're in the 120s, and you really didn't see any indication that it was from them going downhill. They just, they just, that's all they had. And for a long time, you know, we, I think for our issue, it's an epigenetic issue that's just not kicking on some of those hormone triggers to allow those animals to really kick it in gear nutritionally but anyway we can have that conversation later um because it would be very interesting to see what you're seeing from an elk standpoint but my for for this one you already said it so you've got fifty thousand acres and you've already said that over these past several years you are finding that there are elk that are not on the ranch in the summer that just magically you know like lucky charms magically delicious or whatever they just show up in the fall and then they rut there, have their heyday, and then they're gone again. And then it sounds like you've got bulls that, yeah, they're there in the summer. They're there. You can put a camera. You're getting pictures of them right now. But where he is now, well, I, let me ask you this. Where he is now, is it 
highly unlikely that he'll be here? Do they all move? Say again? We have some bulls that are very, very resident, and they pretty much stay right in the same kind of pastures, and then all of a sudden, boom, they're rutting, and they're rutting right there, and they're rutting with those group of cows. And then all of a sudden, bulls that will be getting way on another side of the ranch, all of a sudden, they'll show up, and you know they'll rut you know, in a certain spot. We have some bulls that basically hit every good rut spot on the ranch, and then we have some bulls like Creed, uh, he stayed in a very specific window, and he would never cross a certain latitude, if you will. Um, and, you know, other bulls that we've nicknamed that don't go west, and they, you know, bulls that don't go east, and some that go south, and some that go north. And, you know, so it depends on the bull. Uh, but there's dang sure lots of bulls that just show up. We have lots of cows on the property, and there's no pressure. So, you know, they just know that that's a good place to go to rest. So, you know, come the rut, just bulls come from everywhere. And then they're smart enough to know, you know, even after the rut, to kind of hang around, to make sure that they make it through. I, I just, I, I feel like I didn't know this as much with Arizona. Also, the more I've been around Colorado, well, they know when the season are. Like, they know, they've learned running with their mama. They know where to stay. They know where the pressure, you know, there's no pressure. And, they know where to hang, and then all of a sudden, when you know December, January, they can just go on a walkabout, and they go winter somewhere. Yeah. And then we have bulls that you know shed their or uh, drop their antlers and live on the ranch, and they never leave. Um, so it's you know every bull is different, but for, for the most part, yeah. I mean, elk definitely velvet pictures uh, don't do us a lot of good. Especially, I would say, guys that are trying to run, you know, trail cameras on public ground. I would say about the 25th of August is when you should go and just pepper your cameras up if you're going to be trying to get any value related to your hunting area. Now, I think running cameras for velvet bulls is good because it energizes guys and gets them fired up and gets them excited for the season. And but the reality of hunting those bulls. Um, and I've seen it so much where those bulls are 25 miles away, not anywhere near or close to where they've been getting, you know, velvet pictures. And or I get people sending me pictures all the time of bulls that I recognize that, you know, come rut time and come honey season, they're on ranch. But in the summer, they're, you know, I've got pictures, you know, they're 10 miles away. Yeah. Yeah. And all of a sudden they're like, do you, do you know this bull? I'm like, yeah, that's so-and-so. And. They're like, well, here's the pen of where that whole summer is, you know, 10, 12, 15 miles away. Yeah. So here's a question. So I, think, I think, too, looking at good hunting properties, for those people out there that are also talking about, you know, looking at a property to buy, if it were me, I would want to have a property that is a good rut place. Where do all the elk want to be during the rut? That's what you want to buy. I mean, you could have a 5,000 acre ranch that's phenomenal as long as it's the right ground. Or you could have a 5,000 acre ranch that there's not an elk on it during hunting season. Yeah, and bingo. And that's, I mean, I'm dealing with this right now. I've got a couple of people that want me to consult with them as far as some uh, a couple different things. And one of them, I, I, that's absolutely the same parallel that I tell people for whitetails. I don't give two cri- I don't give two craps about where that buck spends this summer. I really don't. Uh, you know what? Quite honestly, in agriculture areas like like we're, they spend it on somebody else's dirt. 
Correct. Yeah, exactly. Go eat someone else's ag field, not mine. But I'm going to create a sanctuary on my ground to where those deer know darn well as soon as the first, you know, stinky human climbs up into a tree in the fall, they're like, ah, we're out of here. It's time to go. And we're going to go over to Rose place because that's, you know, no one bothers us there. You know, I'm going to create that sanctuary. I want that. I want that sink, if you will, that just suckers all the animals into my place come the fall, not only so it's fun to hunt, but also so you add that layer of protection for that herd to where you can allow a diverse age class of animals to make it through the hunting season and make it a little bit better through the the fall. So, um, all right. So what you said there, it, 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 helps to validate some of what I've said, but I've talked about this enough times, but, you know, you never prove anything to be true. All you can do is disprove it. And so as soon as somebody does something squirrely, you're like, oh, well, crap. On average, or not on average, do you have a sense? How do I want to put this? Let me take it two steps. Okay, so you made a statement there that I, I, tr- I believe and I've, I've talked about this and I've educated people on this. Individual bulls are individual bulls and each one can and oftentimes is different. And you said right there that you have some bulls that they have a home range on that ranch and they never step outside it. You have other bulls that you may, you know, that I like a region of the ranch and, and I'll wander around that region but I won't go south or I won't go west or I won't. And then you have other bulls that just, they're, they're everywhere. And then you have bulls that are, that don't summer on the branch and then they come in. So you have a pile of different individual bulls, all exhibiting different individual behavior. Here's a question. Do you have any sense of, are there any trends that you've seen as of yet where it seems like 10% are these transitory bulls, but 90% are these homebodies? Or is it 90% are these transient bulls and only 10% are homebodies? Or is there a mix? What, well, you, what I would tell you is the ones that wander the most, if I was generalizing, are the younger bulls. The more mature bull gets, the tighter his range gets a lot like a big coot Sure. Like a big white tail. Um, the more mature, the more, the bigger, the older, you know, more mature bull, they t- their range tends to shrink. That's my opinion. The, the younger bulls tend to be the ones that are running here and there and everywhere. Well, they're trying to find their place um, on the map. You know, I mean, they're trying to figure out where they fit in. Yeah, where they fit in. And, and I would say, I would say we have 50% of our bulls come to the ranch, they don't come around the ranch and they show up and they're there pretty much all of the rut and all of money season and then they leave and I don't even know where they go. And then 50% are on the ranch at all times to stay there. Yeah. Never leave. And, and then in that 50% that even stay there, you have variability on individual behavior. Right. Certain bulls that I know I can always get them in this, you know, 400 acre stretch, he's going to be on a couple Connect the dots that hey, that bull never 
thing and she stays right here the whole time. He may rub down the bottom and run up on the side or the top or the middle, but he's never going over that next drainage. And then they'll have some that, you know, they cover two or three drainages and you'll get them on this camera and this drainage and the next drainage over and the next drainage over. Uh, and then you'll get some bulls that, you know, he's, you know, 10 miles on one end of the ranch and 10 miles on the other the next day. All right. See, that's okay. And I can hear P. I can hear somebody. You know, I'm. I'm. I've got a couple guys in mind, but I can. I can hear people saying, "Well, see, Chris, that's that's why I want to run a game camera because I, you know, you know, like Jay said, you know, there's those bulls yeah, that during stay the rut, during the rut. Okay. Like, there's no benefit in my mind at all. No benefit for someone running summer velvet because where are the cows at? I'd rather run summer cameras and find all the cows. Yes. I could care less about the bulls. Yes. I want to know where are the cows? Where are the most cows? And what and what is that? Yeah. These these public ground places, you know where the cow spots are, you know where the rutting grounds, you know where they like to rut, you know where they like to bed. Then you can start kind of focusing in on specific bulls and trying to figure out, okay, this bull, you know, kind of stays in this drainage. But for the most part, velvet and hard antlers. Well, and when I say the ranch, they say a ranch, but they may be seven miles away in a completely different area of the ranch. Yeah, they still have stayed on the ranch, but very rarely does one bull um, stay. And I guess I should have made that clear when I was kind of talking about you know bulls that stay. A lot of that is what I'm talking about during hunting season. He's in. This is where he rolls, and then he's gone. Let's talk about then. Then just real briefly. Then let's talk about. And I think you've already have. But if you want, just kind of embellish that a little bit. Let's talk about what you see from July to September. You know, because that's what you're saying is you know during the rut you've got some of these bulls that that tend to stay. But like you said, with what you're seeing from July, are you my, able to? My, my, no, my spots in July compared to the rut totally different bulls and totally different areas. So it just tells me that they do not grow their velvet and summer in the same place they rut. Okay, and, and you the are... Majority, the majority do not rut where they grow velvet. Exactly. Perfect, okay? And the, the, the thing that I think people need to be very clear on, and the reason why I asked you about the habitat in the beginning was because you have a mix of, yeah, we have everything. You have, have everything. We have everything. You have everything from summer habitat all the way to winter habitat. And quite honestly, some of the lower pastures there that you now alpha stuff that you get. I mean, you have everything for those elk 365. If we're talking about going up into a, a chunk of ground where you are literally only in summer area and maybe a little transition area, and the winter range is 20 miles down the hill, okay, you're only capturing a tiny snapshot of where those animals are at that time. And it's, and when you're dealing with the higher country, backcountry type deals, that only, because of the way the habitat is, it only predisposes those animals to move even more than what you might be dealing with on the odd six. 
Because they, there's no, they don't, with what you have at that ranch, really, they don't quote unquote need to move per se. They, ju- but they, but they do. They choose to, but they just do. When you're talking about, you know, I'm gonna go at, hunt between ten thousand and twelve thousand feet. Um, yeah, there probably is not a lot of winter range up there, and as as things start to dry out, as things start to senesce, and as it gets later on in the season, and people are saying, well, you know, September is early and it's not in the winter. Yeah, that's fine. But the vegetation does change. They are, those elk like to move. There's just period. They they just flat move. And when you're in those transition areas, especially the high country areas, those elk have to move and become accustomed to moving longer distances to go to winter range even more so than what Jay, what you're seeing there, and even then you're seeing the same thing that I've been talking about for these years, and where every animal is different, yes, but where they are in the summer is almost not going to be. I mean, with a high degree almost of pre- never going to be where they're. There you go. It's totally different. Almost there you go. Never is where they're at, where they velvet, is where they run, or where it's totally different. And I would say another factor there from just going from summer range to winter range, you got to throw in pressure. There you go. And you got to throw in these elk that, you know, some of these cows that are 15, 16, 17 years old, they know when the time when all of a sudden stuff starts rolling into the high country and travel trailers and noise and this and that. I mean, yep. by the last week of August, elk are just piling into our property. Just it- piling in. And it's not like, they just know. They just know about that time they just pile into the property because they know, I don't know how they know, but they get pressured and they just know. It's well, I think like they wait for the pressure, Chris. They're already down on us before they pressure. Like the pressure is driving in and the elk are already coming and on us. Yeah. yeah and no, I mean, that's the thing. Is that, and I. Uh, this is going to be a, another podcast for a later date. I just... I've got to get my emotion out of it because I see what's happening in Colorado on some of these, you know, there's some research projects going on in Colorado, um, quote unquote, looking at recreation and the, what some have said, well, you know, recreation is causing a decline in elk numbers. And thank you. My gut tells me you're full of shit. You're full of shit, and you know damn well that the bear population is through the roof. Your lion population is record numbers, and they don't want to. They they don't want to tiptoe into the world of the predator activists because every time they do, they get sued. And I understand all the political issues around that, but I think they know darn well that predators are just ha- the ones we've gotten that Colorado has now. Let's not even talk about the wolf for introduction. The, the lions, I was going to say lions and tigers and bears. We don't have tigers yet, dang it. I'm, I'm Hopefully we don't. But the lions and bears, oh my. We know for a fact, and I when I worked on the Upper Eagle River elk study, that study showed definitively that, on, that heavy off-trail activity in calving areas, yes, can significantly plummet the cow-calf ratios and the overall recruitment of the population. However, what it also showed was Organized, on-trail, consistent activity, trail-based activities don't necess- don't generally cause a problem. And so, I'm just, I'm, Chris, yeah. Chris, Chris, Chris. I can solve the Colorado elk problem for you. 
<laughs> just put wolves in what? They're issuing way too many tags and shooting way too many elk and pressuring during hunting season way too many elk. That's my opinion. That's not well, my opinion about this ranch. That's my opinion of what I've witnessed. Well, and, and I too think there's... resident pressure to keep over-the-counter and keep, um, you know, public land opportunities available to all, which has in turn killed the golden goose. That's what happened. They have cooked the golden goose in the pot, and it is cooked and ready to eat. And I think I think you have. I think there's a lot of what you're saying there that absolutely can be true. But now let me let me just throw devil's advocate at you. They will say, well, you know, we've had we've done the same thing for years, and and even back in the day of of the. Okay, so if I re- don't quote me on this because I might be wrong, because I. The Upper Eagle River Elk Study before it started, or it, when it started, when we were doing our uh, counts, there was a treatment area that we were disturbing elk, and then there was the control area where we were doing nothing other than just watching. In the control area, I thought, don't quote me, but my I thought we were sitting somewhere in that 60 to 80 calves per 100 cows back then. Now it's abysmal. It's just, it's pathetic. Um, 30, 25 or 30. Maybe, yeah. It, so, my, so I could, so some would argue, well, you know, see, you know, there, there's, you know, that's, you know, we, we did the same thing back then. It, you know, something's different now. And, and what they claim to be the difference is, is that, you know, summer recreation in the mountains is much, much higher than it ever used to be, which is true. Just whether or not there's a link there, I don't know. Now, the, the the other flip side, though, is I will say I agree with you on, you know, for years, they wanted to get the elk population numbers down, and so they were giving everybody and their brother's uncle a cow tag. And I right, think... But what you're not covering there is the fact that there's enough private property around that as soon as the pressure is, the elk run on private property. So you jammed guys all around on public ground and all the elk that you know the state trying to manage run on private property, and they never achieve their harvest objective. So guess what? Their numbers go up. But guess what? When you ask hunters about their success and what they think, they continue to say it sucks. Why does it suck? Because they're going to the sanctuaries. They're going to the private property. If wow. they would issue less tags, I think there would be less pressure on public ground and they would actually see their harvest and kill percentage go up because they're not pressuring the elk to push them down on price. Yeah, the, the agency's already that's broke. That's my opinion. Yeah. yeah. I think that's what's going on. Well, the agency's already broke. They, there's no way they can not sell tags. I, my, I guess let me just, in, again... I, I would like to have a conversation with the biologists that are doing it because there's multiple studies about this recreation tie to elk numbers. The the number yeah, one that's the, also politi- been politi- politicized. Oh, be, oh, absolutely. My prediction. I, I, just say it right here. My prediction. My prediction. They're going to get done with these studies, and they're going to say, well, because of human disturbance, it's pushing elk into riskier areas, and that's why bears and lions are killing them. It's not because bears and lions are out there in just grotesque numbers. No, no. It's because human in in you know incur you know in, incursion on the landscape and, and human disturbance is causing them to be vulnerable. And here's why. 
and this is my opinion, and again, I, maybe I'll just get my, my emotional bias out of the way right here. Here's the thing. There's been something called, in the wildlife world, called teaming with wildlife. So you and I know, anybody that's listening here that's a hunter, a lot of people know about the Dingle Johnson, Pittman Robertson Act. The, the, the fact that our sporting, our guns, ammo, fishing gear, that type of stuff is taxed. And a bunch of the, the tax money goes to fund the North American model of wildlife. Okay. So that's where the a lot of money go comes from. And the argument for hunting is the hunter's dollars are what pays for conservation. Absolutely. There's always been this desire to have non-consumptive users pitch in and pay their quote-unquote fair share of the management because hunters are paying for the management of all wildlife species in the state. And so the argument is, well, the non-consumptive users ought to pay in as well. Well, they've never been able to legislatively pull that off because the non-consumptive community always says, well, we don't cause, we're not killing the animals. We're not causing, we're not negatively impacting wildlife populations. So of course, hunters need to pay for the the wildlife management because they're killing them. And so it's a trade-off, but bird watchers are just going up there and watching a bird. No one's, they're not impacting a bird population. So there's no cost. They're non-consumptive users. So they don't need to pitch in and they've never been able to get teaming wildlife, teaming for wildlife to go anywhere. Fast forward to when the Division of Wildlife put together and posited the habitat stamp. The whole are I was politically active in Colorado during those days. The habitat stamp was touted as the solution whereby non-consumptive users could go in and purchase a habitat stamp and they could pay for help pay for non-consumptive or non-consumptive use in non-game species and, and pitch in for wildlife uh, management. Well, of course, the agency made all hunters and anglers purchase the thing, so it was mandatory for them. But it still was not mandatory for the non-consumptive user. You want to know how that program worked out from a non-consumptive user standpoint? Pathetic. Abysmal. Nobody bought them. Hence the reason why now we fast forward again to guess what? You've got to have a hunting or fishing license to go actively be on a state wildlife area. Again, they're trying to figure out a way to get non-consumptive users to pitch in. Now, my conspiracy theorist mind kicks in and says, okay, let me get this straight. So we did the elk study and it showed that recreation, off-trail recreation can have an impact on, on elk. But on-trail, organized recreation does not per se. Back in, the, back in the day when the elk study finished up, they were, the reason the elk study and why I got my start on doing elk behavior stuff was because Vail Associates wanted to develop the back bowls of Vail for the ski area and for some summer recreation area. Well, that was always a known uh, calving area. And so the agency was like, no, you can't do that because it's going to impact the, the elk. And then Vail Associates rightfully came back and said, where's your data? And there was no data. So they did the study. And the age, I truly believe in my heart of hearts, the agency and the Colorado State University, when the study was done, they handed that over to the Forest Service and they thought they had shown that, okay, recreation and, and disturbance on calving areas is a problem. The problem is, is my interpretation of it was the Forest Service looked at it and said, well, what you said is heavy off-trail disorganized activity causes a problem, not trail-based activity. And if we limit, tra- limit it to trail-based activity, we're good to go. And for a variety of other reasons, 
Vale Associates was given the green light to go ahead and develop in the back bowls of ale. And it pissed a bunch of people off. My guess is now they're looking at this going, okay, the elk population in the same area is tanking while at the same time, summer recreation and Vale Associates is just raking in cash. Vale, Beaver Creek, all of those areas, all those recreation areas up there are raking in buku cash from summer recreation up there. No one is buying a habitat stamp. There's no money coming in for non-consumptive users. There's no money coming in. There's no tax money coming to the Division of Wildlife from all of these recreationists up there. What a ready-made, incestuous relationship that could be parlayed into, well, guess what? We have, an, we have elk numbers declining in the same area where we have all this recreation. If we can show that recreation is now having a problem, is having a negative impact, well, now we can go to the legislature. And now we can say, see, we've told you all along that non-consumptive users have a detrimental impact to wildlife populations. So guess what? We need to either have a tax on Vale Associates. We need to have you know, some recreation tax, some teeming with wildlife-esque state-run program to where we start taxing non-consumptive users and that money gets channeled to the Division of Wildlife. Mark my words. Mark my words. That's exactly what's going to come of this thing. It's not about finding what's going on with the elk and actually having, in, in, in my opinion, again, I know I'm biased and I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm telling you, I've been in that world and I've seen it from both sides. I've, I've, I've literally sat in public meetings and watched wildlife professionals, agency professionals, literally twist the science to meet the narrative they want simply because, well, I don't like their development plan. What? You're going you're gonna to bastardize what you know to be true simply because you have an ax to grind on a recreational facility or a, a development, you know, a... a, a Oh golly, it, it it just it's bad, dude. So I'm not I'm I I agree with you. I think you got predator issues. I think we've got the fact that we killed way too many cows over the years, and quite honestly, we do have some habitat issues. We've got some changes in habitats now that you know we ought to be out there doing some much much better habitat uh, management type style things. But geez, oh, Pete, we went off on the weeds on that one. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'll finish by one thing saying we always hear about the mule deer. This always just makes me kind of shake my head how mule deer habitat is, you know, getting gobbled up and I don't disagree with that. But how come in all these towns in Colorado during hunting season you drive around and there's deer everywhere in people's yards and golf courses all around and they say that people are pushing the deer out and the deer just Living there just fine, being happy as plants. Yeah, it, it, that's that's literally the second half of my argument on this I mean, whole they elk live thing. In people's backyard, like yes, if if dirty lives in people's backyard and sits there and eats the grass and just yeah, ex- fine, and they manage to dodge all the hunters because they're down on private ground. Exactly, and and that's my that's the second half of my argument about the elk thing is because okay, so while you're sitting there telling me that the Upper Eagle River elk population is tanking because of human recreation. Meanwhile, we're trying to figure out how to manage the number of elk that have moved into Loveland. 
we are trying to figure out how to manage the number of elk that are in the Estes Valley and we can't hunt them because they're in, they're in the they're in giving birth on people's back decks. Come on. Elk and deer are some of the most easily habituated to critters to human activity. Well, to your point. Correct. Or 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 when they're getting chased down the mountain by a bear or a lion and getting chomped, they go, hmm, I'm gonna go sit on this back the back deck of this person because this person doesn't bother me. But guess what? The lions don't come in here either. The same the same goes to what you said with Unit 9. I think part of the reason why you see a little bit of a difference, which you were saying, in and around you. About the end of August, all those animals are just bailing over onto the Ot Six Ranch because they know the pressure wave is of human disturbance is going to hit. I think part of the reason why it's a little bit maybe more buffered in Unit Nine in some well in even a lot of the Ponderosa Pine community areas of Arizona is just because you have good access and you have summer recreation in some of those areas year round. And so the elk are like, okay, well, you know, there's people here. There's pe-. Now, once the people are like, oh, shit, they're, they're flinging stuff at me now. Okay, that's different. Okay, so I'm going to run to the park. But I think they get used to having a level of recreation around them where the public, like you said, you start coming towards the end of August and all of a sudden here come the fifth wheels and here come the campers and here come the rangers and the ATVs and here come, it's like horse trailers. And it's like, okay, something's different. All right. Well, here then, let's let's wrap this up. I want your opinion because you mentioned something about when you thought running your game camera, when to start running the game cameras. And I think you said somewhere, what did you say, August 25th or something like that? Yeah. All right. Here's what I have said. I want to know your opinion on the matter. I have told people to stay out of their hunting area by, you know, from, I would even argue mid-July, but I'll, at the very least, do not go into your hunt. If you want to glass it from a distance, that's one thing, but don't go trompsing around in the area you actively want to hunt from August 1st on. If people want to run a game camera for their hunt on public ground, whether, I don't care what habitat or elevation you are, Go out no later than about July 15th. I, I like the July 15th drop dead date because that's by the, a lot of times that's when most of those animals are on and settled in their summer range. But drop dead about July 15th. Go ahead and put your cameras up. Make sure you're using lithium batteries. Don't set your camera to take a picture every five seconds. Don't go taking one minute video clips every five seconds. Make sure you can get a good camera that's going to sip on batteries. That's going to last you a while, but put your camera up. And then when you roll in and start your hunt opening weekend or whatever, you hunt your way to those camera locations and that's when you check your camera. If you pull your camera and you start at the, the, the most recent picture taken and go backwards in time, if while you are standing there, you have good data to show that, oh my gosh, there was an elk in this wallow yesterday on the day before, the day before that. Holy hell, he's right here. Okay, well then park yourself and hunt versus... If you start flipping back through the camera and you go, wait a minute, I don't have a picture for the, you know, the the last picture of an elk is from two or three weeks ago. Okay, well now I know that I need to 
I need to bail out of this area and I need to go somewhere else. The thing that I keep seeing, and, th- th- and I saw this just grotesquely in some of the areas, low elevation areas that I've hunted in the past, people can't not fiddle with cameras. And so they go put them up in July and then they want to go check them at the end of July and then they go back up middle of August and then they go back in right before hunt. They're constantly going in there to check the camera, but it's not just them. There's multiple people. And now you've got more and more, just like what we said with you and what you see on the Ot 6, the more you have this pressure wave of human activity in these areas that these elk want to be, the more they and quicker they learn of, oh crap, here we go again, and they move. I, I can't tell you the number of guys that I, I've seen going in constantly checking cameras and then they wonder why come opening day that wallow that used to be just hot has three sets of boot tracks on it and there's no elk around. Well, yeah, because you just shot yourself, all of you shot yourselves in the foot by going up and creating disturbance where the disturbance you were putting on the landscape wasn't even giving you actionable intel to begin with. What is your thought? I would say that, yeah, if you have a big enough card and you have the ability to have batteries that last as long, setting it, you know, July 15th or even August 1st. But what you have to understand is probably the first, if you're setting it August 1st, the first 20 days of data really doesn't mean anything other than if you have cows and you're counting cows. When you really want to know your old data is about August 20th, the 25th, kind of in that third week of August range. That's when those bulls make their move from the summer ground to the, the rut, what I call the rutting ground. And that's the data if you're looking to harvest bulls. That's what you're looking for. What's here right now? If it was July 15th, that bull could literally be 25 miles away. So if you're talking about not disturbing an area, July 15th is great, but understand that probably the first 30 days of pictures meet a meme other than cow elk. Like you're going to see what happens is you're going to get a big bull, some big six by seven velvet bull on the 27th of July, and you're like, wow, this is a giant, he's right here. No, you're going to get your hopes up, you're going to spend the whole season, and the reality is he's not there. Um, if disturbance wasn't a factor, I would say go set the cameras about the 25th of August and start taking immediate inventory right then because everything moves around that 25th of August. So any data prior to that other than cow elk is me. Perfect, man. I, I, I agree. I, I wanted your opinion because you've seen, I mean, again, we didn't really talk about Arizona much. I'm going to try to either get John on or I might even give, give Steve a call because Steve Chapel, he was an earlier, early adopter of the game cameras. Was he or was he not? Uh, I think, yeah, I think, I don't know that he was one of the early adopters, but he very quickly realized that if he was going to be, you know, guiding in Arizona with all the guys running cameras in order to to actually get clients, you have to show those big velvet bull photos because the reality is most hunters don't understand that those velvet bulls, a perfect example, one big giant bull, that flare bull that always summered in here at nine, you know, was killed in seven west, 27 miles away. Yeah. Yeah. And I can think of several. 
rifles, you know, stumbled in Unit 9 and were killed in Unit 10, or stumbled in Unit 10 and killed in Unit 9. The funny thing is, other bulls come from Unit 10 to Unit 9, the same place the giant bull was in 9 that just left with Unit 10. Yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? So it's not like it's, ha- I don't think it's as much habitat driven in Arizona. It's just, this elk wants to run over here and this elk wants to run over there. And they pass each other. Like the nine bulls headed to ten, and the, the ten bulls headed to nine. Yeah, and, and, and it they, wasn't... They go to the exact same areas, and all of a sudden you're thinking, well, why didn't this guy just stay here and that guy just stay there? Exactly. Just, that's it, not how they're wired. They're wired to go where they want to go to run. And what I have found is that elk tend to, and I've learned this on not fixed, the same bulls tend to go back to the exact same areas to run every single year. And tell something. If they stay alive. It, yep, exactly. They go back to the same spot every single year. Yeah. People don't understand that. No, and and again, here we're talking about a fifty thousand acre ranch or unit nine, a couple hundred thousand acres, and and getting and seeing that the just the the difference across that size of a landscape when most hunters are only hunting and I think you made a that was a perfect 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 visual um example analysis or uh, analogy of of the square mile so a square mile mile by mile is 640 acres so think about that so if your valley that you're hunting in is two miles long and one mile wide that's only 1200 only acres 1200 acres it's 1200 acres they can cover that they can be in and out of that in two seconds i just i literally so for the elk collective i just put together a video so you know this on uh the the elk module I have a video there when I went after, it was my high country camp, I went after a big 5x5 and finally called him in, shot, missed. So missed him, he goes up, I go to get my arrow and check for blood and I completely didn't realize that when I went to get my arrow, the cows that he had could see me. And so I just completely foobarred and boogered those cows and those cows packed up and flat left the valley and it was one of those areas where yes it's about two miles long by one mile wide and they just flat left that entire valley the only difference in this it's not that that's an anomaly the only thing is is it was in the alpine so i could literally sit there and video it and watch them go and i knew where they were going kind of like what you're doing on the odd six you can see and you Okay, we didn't even talk about the fact, and people need to, so most everybody that's listening to me knows about you, because I mean, geez, oh, Pete, how many times have I been on your podcast? But everybody needs to go, A, listen to J. Scott Outdoors, the J. Scott Podcast, number one. Number two, go to uh, Instagram, because you you have the Ot6 has its own Instagram page too, correct? Yep. So it's just, is it just Ot6 Ranch? Ot6 Ranch, yep. There you go. Go to J. Scott Outdoors on Instagram and then Hot Six Ranch, A U G H D S I X Ranch, Hot Six Ranch. Perfect. Because people need to go there and take a look. Because you, you're, I mean, obviously you're posting a lot of good pictures on there. But what we did not even talk about here is we were just talking about the game cameras. You're up there every day. When you're out there, you're out there. You and Hunter are out there every day on high points 
with optics. I mean, you love to sit behind glass anyway, but you're up there watching. So not only are you seeing what's coming on the, you know, popping up on the game cameras, you're actually verifying from eyeballs when the elk aren't even in front of the game camera. So when we're, again, we're talking about Jay monitoring 50,000 acres and seeing this stuff that I've been talking about for years. So for those people that get frustrated at me when I tell them, don't waste your time, uh, you know, at, at least up in the high country running game cameras in the summer, okay, uh, here's why. He's talking about 50,000 acres and seeing all the variability, and we're talking about you're hunting 1,200 acres? Let's just stretch that to 1,800 acres. <coughs> you might you might be in the catbird seat in the one, like Jay Sam. There are some places where the elk will always rut and they'll just, that's where, that's where they are and that's where they want to be. You might have that chunk of 1,800 acres, 1,200 acres or 1,800 acres on the public ground where that's where the cows want to be, that's where they're going to rut and your camera it just absolutely blows up with pictures versus you might be on all the other acres out there where yeah, you might get a picture. I can think right now, I've got a spot on the map on one place where I've normally hunted that every year I wanted to kill a big bull here because within a, a one-week span, you would go up that ridge, there would be no elk rubs, Jay. There would be no rubs on, no fresh rubs. And then you'd come back the week, week later and there would be 20, there'd be a dozen to two dozen fresh rubs and the minimum size tree was about a 10-inch diameter tree. And it, I'm, I'm like, holy hell, there's a giant here. No, the giant didn't live there. That was his corridor. And he was there literally every year for about one or two days. That's it. He just he would just move through. And so when you put your camera up and all of a sudden you get this 380 class bull on there, like you said, Jay, and this, I've said this repeatedly, all of a sudden you just get doe-eyed and you're like, oh, I'm going in all in on this guy. He could be 20 miles. All right, I know you. I know, brother, you got to go. Um, thank you for me. I, that was a good conversation. I, I wanted to get your take on it because you have a very credible, solid, qualified opinion on this matter. And you're and I. The reason why I wanted to have you on first when we talked about this, a, I wanted you to be uh, the first elk guest because it's only it's only right. Dance with the one that brought you, but. Um, you are in you're a, you're a perfect example because you are in that transition area you've got summer range you've got transition range and you've got winter range it, it's a perfect it's a perfect uh subject matter to talk about this and i appreciate you taking the time today to come on and talk and i appreciate your insights man but buddy, i appreciate you having me and uh look forward to uh more conversations in the future and uh, again just a congratulations on the success you've had with Go Hunting Resources and your new podcast and uh, yeah let's do it again I look forward to it alright brother stay safe uh, keep posting some pictures of all those fish you're catching because it makes the rest of us jealous <laughs> <laughs> it's been good but the water's about run out so it's uh, time to start focusing on elk now so that's not a bad thing have a great day alright buddy bye